I'm going to ask you to take your Bibles and turn to Hebrews chapter 4. We live in a world of stress and tension. Sometimes it's like we're a rubber band about to be broken. I think America lives on Tylenol and Advil, just trying to figure out how are we going to deal with the stresses of life. I don't believe that our ancestors had the problems of the pace of life like we do, although they had their own stresses and anxieties and fears. But something about the, the pace of life today just normally stresses you out even on a good day. And how do we deal with those stresses? How do we deal with those frustrations, those things that make us just scream or want to pull our hair out? Now, I want to ask you a question. You're in church, so you have to be honest. How many of you have someone or something that just frustrates the stew out of you? Okay, the rest of you are on a lot of medication. <laughs> All of us have people or individuals or circumstances that frustrate us or aggravate us. It could be a work associate, it could be a relative, it could be a job situation, it could be your finances, it can take a number of forms. But let me try to define what I'm talking about when I'm talking about frustration today. A frustration is an obstacle that hinders you from making progress in your life. A frustration is an obstacle. It can be a person, a place, or a thing. It is some obstacle that is hindering you from going forward with your life. It may be in your faith, it may be in your career, it may be in your family, or whatever form it takes, it's an obstacle. It's something that stands in the way, that blocks the road for you, that keeps you from moving forward. And when you don't deal with that obstacle properly, you'll get really frustrated and you'll get stressed out, and you will begin to seek fleshly solutions to your problems rather than God's solutions to your problems. So I want to ask you to begin with me in verse 1 of chapter 4, and you will find that there is a key word in this chapter. It's found ten times. It is the word rest. So every time we come to the word rest, if you want to underline it or highlight it or whatever you do, I would encourage you to mark it because God's got something he's trying to say here about those who find his rest and those who don't find his rest. Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 1. Therefore, let us fear if while a promise remains of entering his rest, any one of you may seem to have come short of it, for indeed we have had good news preached to us, just as they also... Now he's referring back to the children of Israel there. But the word they heard did not profit them because it was not united by faith in those who heard. For we who have believed enter that rest, just as he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has said somewhere concerning the seventh day, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage, they shall not enter my rest. Therefore, since it remains for some to enter it, again referring to the rest, and those who formerly had good news preached to them failed to enter because of disobedience, 
he again fixes a certain day today, saying through David after so long a time, just as has been said before, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, he would not have spoken of another day after that. So there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For the one who has entered his rest has himself also rested from his works as God did from his. Now he's speaking about Jesus there. Therefore, let us be diligent to enter that rest so that no one will fall though through following the same example of disobedience. Now what the writer of Hebrews is doing is he's, he's reminded us in chapter 2 about people who drift away. Now he's telling us to be diligent. With a warning comes an exhortation. There's a tendency to drift. You be diligent. The first thing we need to look at this morning is that life is filled with problems. I need help if I'm going to learn to rest in the Lord. Now Moses liberated the people and he set them free and they crossed the Red Sea and they were on their way to Kadesh Barnea to, to go into the promised land, the land that God had said that he would give them, but they missed it. For them, the land of rest. For us, it is a life of rest. Now I'm not talking about living your spiritual life in a lazy boy. I'm not talking about a recliner mentality. I'm talking about us having the understanding that when you hit times of frustration, when you hit times when your faith is being tested, when you hit those moments when you're not sure if God's going to come through, you have to learn to rest on Him and believe His promises. Notice a quote by Warren Wiersbe. The wilderness wanderings represent the experience of believers who will not claim their inheritance in Christ, who doubt God's Word, and live in restless unbelief. This chapter is about a lesson. Look at verse 19 of chapter 3. It's in your notes. They were not able to enter because of unbelief. And then three times in verse 11 of chapter 3 and verses 3 and 5 of chapter 4, they shall not enter my rest. Why? Because they wouldn't believe God. God had made all these promises to them. God had a covenant relationship with them. God had said to them, I'm going to give you this land. I've provided for you. They went out and spied the land out. They saw what the land offered, and yet they would not believe God when he said, I'm giving that to you. How much is that like many of us today who hear the promises of God and hear about the Holy Spirit and hear about power and hear about abundant life and victorious living, but somehow we've missed it and we don't think it applies to us. It must be for somebody else. It's for everybody, but not for me. Why did they not believe? Because they wouldn't trust God. They wouldn't take Him at His word. And notice what they did in Exodus 14. They got to the Red Sea and they complained. Now, listen, God had already delivered them from the mightiest army on the face of the earth. God had already taken them out. God had already answered their prayers. Now they get to a barrier called the Red Sea and they think God's going to leave them there to die. 
And so God delivered them from the Egyptians. They stand on the other side. They watch the waters come in. They see the Egyptian army drown. And now they have nothing to stop them from going to the land of promise, from acting on all that God has done for them. But they complain. Verse, uh, chapter 15, verse 24. They grumble because they didn't have any water. Well, now, if you needed water, you would complain and say, you know, I need something to drink. God gave them water. Then they grumbled because they didn't have any food, so God gave them manna. Then after God gave them water and food, they grumbled because of the food God gave them. That sounds like your children, doesn't it? Doesn't matter what you put on the table, they're not happy. And sometimes we're like that with our Heavenly Father. No matter what He gives us, we're always asking Him, why don't you give us what somebody else has got? Why can't I have somebody else's blessings? Why can't I have somebody else's kids? Why can't I have somebody else's uh, financial wealth? Why can't I have my life like somebody else? And they grumbled and they complained in chapter 17. Moses said, you're grumbling against me, but really you're grumbling against the Lord. So why didn't God let them in? Well, unbelief, but I want to tell you, there are two or three things here. First of all, God was testing them. God was testing them to see if they would take him at his word. And so I want to ask you to turn to Deuteronomy chapter 8. Hold your place in Hebrews and go to Deuteronomy chapter 8. God was testing them. He was trying to get them to look in the mirror. He was trying to get them to see how he would provide for them and meet the needs of their lives. And he comes back through Moses at the end of 40 years and says to the second generation the generation that survived the wilderness, the generation that did not doubt. He says to them, as a witness against their parents and as a witness for God, Deuteronomy 8, verse 2, you shall remember all the way which the Lord your God has led you in the wilderness these 40 years. Why? That he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you and let you be hungry and fed you with manna which you did not know. The word manna means, what is it? Nor did your fathers know that he might make you understand that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by everything that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord. Now why did he do that? He told them that in Deuteronomy 8 to say, look, your parents, your ancestors, the people that died in this wilderness for 40 years never figured out how to trust me. All they did was complain. All they did was bellyache. All they did was gripe about everything that I did for them. They never figured it out. But now, on this side of it, looking back, I want you to get my perspective of what I was doing even in the wilderness. I was willing to take you to the land. I was willing to give you the land, but you didn't want it bad enough. You did not desire it enough. And so because you didn't learn to trust me, I had to take you through 40 years of wilderness. Now, I want you to remember when you go into that land, remember if you can trust me in the wilderness, you can trust me in this new land to provide all your needs. The manna had every nutrient they needed, everything they needed to survive. They didn't have to read any labels. It came every day on time in the right amount to feed all of these people. And yet they were viewing life from a negative perspective. They didn't believe that God had their best interests at heart. 
Now, one of the things that will frustrate you in your life is that you get it in your mind or you allow the enemy to get in your mind that God doesn't have your best interest at heart, that somehow God wants to take your life and make you miserable. Now, God is not going to protect you from all problems. God is not going to protect you from all suffering. But God will go with you in those problems if you'll learn to trust Him. And so these people were unwilling to trust God. And so everything God tried to do in their lives, they were viewing negatively. Yeah, God's done this, but He should have done more. Yeah, God's answered this prayer, but I had three that He didn't answer like I wanted Him to. And sometimes God takes us into a wilderness to remind us we're not as hot as we think we are. We're not as good as we think we are. We're just not quite all of what we think we are. And God took his people into the wilderness to humble them and to teach them and to test them. Why was he doing that? Because they got out there and thought, you know, Maybe we did this on our own. And they got arrogant. They got proud. And God had to take them through a sifting time and through a wilderness time. God was testing them. But I want you to turn to Exodus 17 because not only was God testing them, they were testing God, but not in the right way. They were testing God. Exodus 17. This is a rebuke against the people of God in that time. Exodus 17 and verse 7. He named the place Massah and Meribah because of the quarrel of the sons of Israel and because they tested the Lord, saying, Is the Lord among us or not? How did they test God? They said, I don't know if God's in this or not. I don't know if God's letting this happen to me. I don't know why I'm going through this. I'm not sure God cares what I'm going through. I'm not sure God understands how I feel. I'm not sure God understands my needs and my hurts and my wants and my stresses and my frustrations. I don't know that God really cares. I don't know if he's even here. Where's God when I need him? These people were an example of how not to live for God. And over and over in the New Testament, we find that their attitude disqualified them from God working in their lives. Now, what we do with our frustration is going to determine whether God can work in our lives. How we respond to circumstances will determine if God can work in our lives or if we, like them, will be disqualified. God was testing them. They were in turn arguing about what God was doing, testing God, but thirdly, their hearts were not in the right place. So turn back to the book of Hebrews, chapter 3. Their hearts were not in the right place. And in Hebrews 3, he gives us three characteristics of their hearts. Three characteristics of their hearts. First, first of all, in verse 12, he says, Take care, learn a lesson, watch out. Now, folks, let me tell you something. We don't have to learn everything by experience. I don't have to eat pig slop to know that I don't want to eat it. I don't have to learn everything by experience. The lie of the devil to teenagers is, well, you need to experiment with everything. You need to try everything. You need to explore your boundaries. Hey, don't be dumb and buy that lie. You don't have to experiment with everything. You don't have to try everything. I don't have to learn everything by experience. I can learn from other people's mistakes. 
I gave, a, I gave a quote to the SALT group this week. said, you know, I can't live long enough to make all the mistakes on my own. So maybe I ought to learn from what other people have done and learn not to do some things. So he says, take care, watch out. Now he gives three kinds of hearts in chapter 3. Verse 8, he talks about the hard-hearted. The hard-hearted. Verse 8, do not harden your hearts. In other words, that's a choice we make. We make the choice to harden our hearts. We can choose to say, I'm just not going to let God speak to me. I'm going to, not going to let God work with me. And sometimes we can even do that in church. We come in church and we throw up a wall and we say, I don't care what it's about, I'm not interested. Or if he gets on a certain subject, I'm just going to shut him down. Uh, if he talks about something that I don't like, that I don't want to hear about, I, I, I'm just going to tune it out. He says, don't be hard-hearted. Secondly, in verse 10, he talks about <clears throat> the wandering heart. They always go astray in their heart. There's an old hymn that says, prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. The wandering heart. That not... This is God's evaluation. God says that these people were always going astray. Left to themselves, they were just drifting astray. They were just going away from their moorings. They were going away from the foundation. They were living their lives, kind of wandering around. No purpose, no aim, no sense of direction. And I'm talking to people in this room this morning, and you have no spiritual sense of direction. You don't know what God wants to do with your life. You're not sure what, why you're even saved. You're not sure what difference it's making in your life. There's a void. There's a vacuum. There's a, a vacancy in your heart. Maybe you were once on fire for God. Maybe your heart was once stirred for God, but right now you're just kind of wandering around, kind of aimless. There are people that are members of this church that years ago they were faithful. They would have never missed a service. And now they just find all kinds of things to do on Sundays. Why? Their hearts wandered away from God. You know how they got a wandering heart? They got a hard heart first. They got a hard heart, and they quit listening to God, and there came a point in an invitation or in a service or in a revival, and God said, you know, there's something there I want to speak to you about. And they said, no, Lord, I'm not interested in you speaking to me in that area. I haven't seen any consequences from my disobedience, so I'm just going to keep living like I want to. And when they put the hard heart up and began to build a shell around their hearts, then their hearts began to wander. Now, the voice of the Spirit wasn't strong. The voice of the enemy in their flesh was strong. The voice of carnal people was strong. And they began to drift away and think about, maybe there's something else I want to do with my Sundays. And now they're not anywhere to be found. FBI can't find them. Why? Because they got hard-hearted and then they wandered. You see, these people didn't just resent the circumstances. They got hard to God because of their circumstances being in the wilderness. They resented that God would even allow those circumstances. And so they wandered away looking for something else. I want to ask you, what do you find if you can't find it in God? What is there to find if you can't find it in God? So they wandered away from God, and then in verse 12... There's an unbelieving heart. Now notice how he describes the unbelieving heart. An evil unbelieving heart. The scripture says whatsoever is not of faith is sin. When we do not believe God, when God says, trust me, try me, prove me, 
When God tells us to trust Him, when God tells us to believe His Word, when God gives us a promise, when God gives us 365 fear knots, when God tells us over and over, I'll supply all your needs according to my riches in Christ Jesus, when God says that there's nothing too difficult for Him, when we don't believe that, then our hearts are unbelieving and God says that's evil. It is evil for us to not believe the promises of God. Now, sometimes we just think, well, that's just a decision. God words it differently. He says it is an evil, unbelieving heart. God looked at them and said, when you don't believe my word, then you are just like the enemy that didn't believe my word, that didn't give me the honor due my name, that did not worship me, that wanted to take a place that he didn't deserve. You become evil when you don't believe. Now, verse 13 says, this ultimately leads to deception. We get deceived, and then we lose touch with reality. Now, pick up in verse 2. The word they heard did not profit them because it was not united by faith. Now, some of us today have heard a lot of sermons, and we've been in a lot of Sunday school classes, and we've heard a lot of teaching and a lot of preaching, but it has not profited you because it's not been united with faith. You've not taken that word that you've heard and received it and taken it into yourself and say, Lord, you know, I'm going to believe that for me. If you said that to Abraham, if you said that to Moses, if you said it to the disciples, if you said it to Paul, then I'm going to believe you put it in your word for a reason, and I'm going to take you at your word, and I'm going to believe your word. I'm not going to believe your, my circumstances because I want your word to be of profit to me. I want it to bear fruit in my life. I want to unite it with faith, faith and works, working together, hearing and doing, working together. Why does the Word of God not work? Why do people walk out of church by the millions on Sundays and they don't seem to be any different during the week? I'll tell you why. They don't unite what they hear with faith. They don't act on what they've heard. Now, notice in verse 6, they heard the good news of God's love. They experienced God's deliverance, but they didn't change. Now, here's the danger of being in church all the time and not growing. The danger is you can know the works of God, but not know His ways. You can know the hand of God, but not know His heart. You can know how God works. Oh, I've seen God work. You know, people being baptized and people joining and, and you know, see people singing. I, I've seen God's work. I've, I've heard about answered prayer, but not know His ways, why God does what He does. You can see His hand moving in people's lives, but never know to trust His heart and to believe that God wants the best for you. And so what happens is we live frustrated lives. Why? Because we don't let the Word of God profit us by bringing faith and the Word together in our lives, and then we know the work of God, but we don't know His ways, we don't know His heart, and so we're frustrated because we've heard all these sermons, and we've gone to all these Bible studies, and we've read all this Scripture and all these books, but nothing's working for us. It's just not making sense. God said to the generation of the Israelites, I'll wait for another generation. I'll see if I can teach them. And the fear that I have for my generation is, is that God would pass us by. 
and say, I'll find another generation to work with. You see, when God puts you in a frustrating situation, when God puts you under the preaching of the Word, when God puts you under the teaching of the Word, when the Holy Spirit is working in your life, the thing you need to do is not throw up a defense system, not throw up a shield, not say, I, I don't want to hear that. That's not a sermon I want to hear. If I hear it, I don't want to hear it from Him. What you need to do is go before God and say, God, what are you trying to say to me? God, what are you trying to teach me? Now, notice in verse 12, there are three warnings here, three B's, if you will. First of all, be careful. Be careful. Watch out. Don't make a mistake by not having your guard up and ready to, to, to see what's going to happen. We're, we're, we're good at watching out for other people. Uh, I, I always have people that want to be my Holy Spirit. <laughs> you know, I mean, they want to tell me how to run my life, you know. And, and, and you already, you, your wife or your husband may be yours. Or it may be your mother-in-law. Or it may be your Sunday school teacher. I don't know who it is, but somebody will always try to help you point out what's wrong in your life. The problem is there's that log and speck issue that Jesus talked about. Sometimes people go after the speck in your life and there's a log in their own. And so the thing we have to be careful with is before we start going, you know, you need to get right, and you need to get right, and you need to get right, and some of you need to get right, and you need to get right, first thing we need to say, am I right? Am I right? Because if I'm not right, I don't have any business telling anybody else what to do. Number two, he says, be encouraging. Be encouraging, verse 13. Try to help people along. Now, some of us are better at that than others. Some of us are real good at being encouragers, and, and some of us are not so good at being encouragers. But the thing is, just remember, you're not the only one struggling. You're not the only one having a hard time. Now, you can get in a Sunday school class, and you can start having a pity party, and it'll go down the drain in about five minutes. And everybody said, well, you know, I'm having a bad week. Well, you think you're having a bad week. I'm having a worse week than you. Well, you think you're having, I'm having a month. And somebody said, well, I'm having a year. And somebody said, well, mine's a whole life. And it becomes top the misery. And so what has to happen, and one of the purposes of Bible study is to get in a room, and when somebody's hurting, you gather around and you encourage them. That's hard to happen in a corporate worship service, but it can happen in a small group where when you're hurting, you say, man, you know, I just, I, I'm just having a struggle right now. Okay, let's just, uh, how can we help you? So be careful. Be encouraging. Now, verse 14, be faithful. Hold fast. When you're frustrated, don't quit. Let God complete His work in you. Now, secondly, God's Word is filled with promises, and I need the power of the Holy Spirit to rest in Him. These people were restless. They had walked in a circle so long that the rut had become a grave. There was no victory in their life. There was no power in their life. Now, I have a proposition for you today. I believe that there are people that want to live in failure. I believe there are people that want to live defeated lives. You say, well, nobody wants to live defeated Uh-huh. Yes, there are. That's why some people never get off welfare, because you get off welfare, you've got to get a job. Some people would rather stay having a handout than do the work to get a job. That's true in society. It's also true in the church. 
You see, because if I'm going to live a life of rest, if I'm going to walk with God, then I have to take personal responsibility for my life. It's no longer about what everybody else is doing. It's about what am I doing. It's a lot easier to complain than it is to rest. It's a lot easier to grumble than it is to rejoice. Our nature and our tendency is to always see the dark side of everything. It's a lot easier to just whine and moan and complain and bellyache than it is to say, Lord, I'm going to take responsibility. And you see, the people of Israel needed to take responsibility. They needed to say, we're in this wilderness because we didn't believe God. And I would hope that they taught their children, don't make the mistake when your time comes that you don't believe God and you miss God's best. You see, if they had believed God, then God wasn't going to bring manna anymore. And that's one thing to gripe about manna. It's another thing to have to go out and learn how to plow a field. See, God wasn't going to drop manna anymore. There wasn't going to be any more hit the rock, water comes out. The pillar of fire and the pillar of cloud was going to be gone. They were going to have to take responsibility for their lives. And sometimes we just like to feel sorry for ourselves and want God to pamper us and baby us along all the way through our lives. One of the things the writer of Hebrews says is some of you need to grow up. The reason we're frustrated is because we, quite honestly, many times would rather live and talk about failure than to live with the responsibility of blessings. We would rather talk about what's wrong with our lives than the blessings of God on our lives. And so it's easy for us to say, I, I don't want the power of the Holy Spirit. I don't want to walk in victory. I don't want to have an abundant life because if I do, then people are going to expect more of me. You're right. They will. But it's a good place to be. Now, <clears throat> what's the life of rest? Scripturally, it means to hold or to continue, to abide or to remain. John 15 talks about abiding in Christ. It means to dwell in obedience. When I live a life of rest, I am living God's kind of life. That's all it is. It's God's kind of life. In, in chapter 3, verses 13 and 14, it says God's promises still apply. In verses 15 through 19, he, he tells us just because the ancestors failed to enter the rest doesn't mean you have to fail to enter it. And then in chapter 4, verses 1 through 11, he says, this is a warning to you. Don't miss God's best for your life. Don't miss the promises that God has for you. And so what is the life of rest? Let me give you some characteristics of it. First of all, it is to arrive at your destination. It is what God intended for you. It is the arriving Canaan after the wilderness. God never intended for his people to live in the wilderness. God intended for them to take a land. They chose to live in the wilderness. The life of rest is to arrive where God intends you to be. To be where you're supposed to be spiritually when you're supposed to be there to live the life of fullness in the power of the Holy Spirit. Secondly, it is a rest we are invited to share. Verse 1 of chapter 4, it is His rest. Verse 3, my rest. Verse 4, God's rest. <clears throat> it is a rest we are invited to share. God didn't say, I'm going to have this and you can't have it. God says, this rest is for you. It is for you, for every one of you. 
It is for you to participate in. Number three, it is to complete your work. It is to complete your work. Now, that doesn't mean retirement. What it means is God rested on the Sabbath. You remember he talked about a Sabbath rest there. It means to enjoy the completion of a finished task. To enjoy the completion of a finished task. What is the life of rest? The life of rest is for you to enjoy letting God complete in you what he intended to do in you when he saved you filling you with the power of the Holy Spirit, giving you the ability to overcome in your life. It is the rest of knowing God has begun a good work in me and He is going to complete it until the day of redemption. Number four, it is resting in the finished work of Christ. Chapter 4 and verse 10. I don't have to add anything to the finished work of Christ. That's why it's called the finished work of Christ. I don't add to it but I can take away from it by trying to live the finished work of Christ, His salvation, and then trying to work or act like I can add something to what He's done for me. The Holy Spirit is the only thing you need to add to what He's done for you. Now, in chapter 2 and verse 26, this is translated, My flesh shall rest in hope. What are we resting in? The hope of what God has said in His Word, that He will do everything He said that He would do. Chapter 4 and verse 11, be diligent to enter that rest. Now, now that's where it gets confusing. If it's a rest, why am I supposed to be diligent? This is the strongest possible word for pursuing something in the Greek language. Be diligent. Go after it with all you've got. Just take hold of it with everything you've got. Don't leave anything in the tank. Run it all out. You see, that doesn't make sense. If I'm supposed to be diligent and run it all out, how am I going to be resting at the same time? What it means is simply this. I am to go after what God's got for me. I'm to go after what God's got for me. They got to Kadesh Barnea, and they had a choice. Go after what God's got for you, cross the river, take the land, or walk in circles. Every one of us come to our own Jordan River where we have to decide, am I going to take what God has for me? Am I going to embrace what God's got for me? Or am I going to live my life in frustration and in failure? This is not an exhortation to self-effort and trying harder. This is putting yourself in the path of the blessings of God. This is for you and I to put ourselves in line where, Lord, if you're going to work, I want to be right in the middle of where you're working. When you speak, I want to be right in the middle of what you're saying. I want to hear. I want to understand. I want to diligently pursue you. I am seeking you. Well, you don't have to seek God. You've already found him. But you do have to seek him. You have to seek him so that he can teach you more. You see, the disciple is a person who is a learner and a follower of one who is teaching them. To be diligent to enter that rest is, Lord, I, I don't know if I understand all this, but whatever it is, I want it. Now, the reason we fail to do that is one of two things. Either it is an area of disobedience. I'm not willing to give up something to God. Or it's an area of independence. I think I know better. 
an area of disobedience or an area of independence. I think I know better. I, I don't want what God says. I know what he says, but I'm not going to do it. Or an area of independence. I know better than God. Now, we have bought a lie, especially in the American culture, of the self-made man. And we're the all-sufficient answer to our own questions. We can either borrow, buy, argue, steal, lie, cheat, climb our way out of any problem. I am so tired of Christians who are dealing with...